As Kevin said, you can see that he's not Jim, as uh, I'm sure now you can see that I'm not Zeke. <laughs> I got a call yesterday morning from Zeke. He, uh, he's down with Daniel and Letty, and they're celebrating the birth of uh, their little girl. So um, it's kind of funny. Zeke called me yesterday morning, and uh, he uh, had sound really rushed, and I could tell he was calling while he was driving. Don't, don't let him. No, I told you that. Uh, but uh, he said, man, he says, you're on tomorrow night. Letty just had the baby. We're done heading the way down. And uh, he said, I got to go. And that was it. That's, that's, that's all he told me. So uh, I called him back this morning. I wanted to see how everything was going. And I said, Zeke, man, I said, hey, I said, you know what? I said, you got to give me some statistics on the baby, man. I said, I can't go up there without anything. I said, those ladies will tear me apart. <laughs> he said, yeah, he says, I was wondering about that, he said. So uh, anyway, uh, the, her name is, uh, her name, this is her first granda- uh, granddaughter, is Elena Lily Flores, born March 29th at 6.47 a.m., 7 pounds, 20 ounces, uh, seven, sorry, 7 pounds, 2 ounces, 20 inches long. So now he's got one girl. One grandbaby uh, girl, one, two grandbaby boys. So, and uh, the main thing is, baby, mama, daddy, and grandparents are all doing well, and we praise God for that. <clears throat> Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, one other thing, a little reminder: what's happening next Thursday night? Anybody know? Very good. Summer series starting the. Uh, our summer uh, series of teaching, The Kingdom of Heaven is at Hand, based on the Sermon of the Mount. That's <clears throat> three, three chapters uh, Matthew uh, dedicated of his gospel to the Sermon on the Mount. So that's a lot of red letters. And the Lord has a lot of things to say to the church through that. So uh, a couple things I would just encourage. Uh, I don't have to encourage you guys because you guys are here every Thursday night. And that says a lot about you. I would encourage you to encourage others to come. It's going to be some really good teaching, and it could be life-changing for them. I would also ask for you to pray for the guys that are going to be teaching it. Zeke's heart is that the guys would all teach the Sermon on the Mount with the Lord's heart. And I know they all want to do that. But in order for them to do that, they need your prayers. So if you guys would, just pray for them. And then lastly, uh, I'm going to throw out a personal challenge to everybody here. We're going to have, I think it's nine or ten weeks of study on the Sermon on the Mount. And I would challenge each of you to read the Sermon on the Mount one, once every week, at least once every week for these ten weeks. And if you do that, it's not, it's not a hard read. It's three chapters. It's probably maybe 10, 15 minutes if you really sit down and go over it. But I I think if you do that and you come to all the studies, you're going to really be blessed and you're going to have a complete different perspective on those scriptures than you ever had before. So just uh, just some encouragement for you guys. It's always hard to know what to to teach when you're filling in just a one-night, I I call it a one-night stand. It's probably not good. It's probably not good terminology. But anyway, I prayed about it, and I wondered what the Lord would have me teach on. And I did a teaching back in 2010 on 2nd uh, on John. And I, I like 2nd John because 2nd John deals with uh, a couple of words that are, are really short uh, in 
our society today. The first one is love and the second one is truth. And if you turn on the TV anytime during the, the week, you can sure see that those two words are really, really, uh, those two things are really in short supply in our world today. So anyway, tonight we're going to be going through the second epistle of the Apostle of John. Second epistle of the Apostle John. Try saying that three times fast. Uh, so if you want to turn there, uh, third, uh, second John, right between first and third John. It's first, second, third John, Jude and Revelation. Go to Revelation, turn left for a couple blocks, and you'll be at Second John. So let's pray. First, Lord, we want to thank and praise you for a little Elena Lily Blanca, uh, Blanca and Zeke's uh, new, new granddaughter. We pray your blessings upon her and upon that entire family. Lord, we also thank you for the opportunity to come before you to worship you in praise and music. We come now before you to worship you through your study of your word. I pray you'd be with me as I bring forth your word and let it be pure and true. And be with each one of us here. Give us ears to hear and hearts to apply all that you would have for us tonight. Go before us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The second epistle of John. As I said, John addresses two very important words here, love and truth. The letter, of course, was written by the Apostle John, and it was probably written from Ephesus. At this time, John was the uh, bishop of the church of Ephesus. Apostle John is known as the Apostle of Love, and love is mentioned throughout 1 John many times. In this epistle, John continues to emphasize the word love, as he did in 1 John, but in 2 John, the Apostle couples love with another word, and that word, of course, is truth. So as love was the key word of 1 John, love along with truth are the two key words of 2 John. John wrote this uh, somewhere around uh, AD 85 to AD 95. Most scholars kind of agree on around AD 90. That seems to be a reasonable date. This is around the same time that the Roman Emperor Domitian was starting his persecution of the church. That persecution reached its height in A.D. 93 to 96 and included the exile of John to the prison island of Patmos where he spent 18 months and where he also received the revelation of Jesus Christ. The recipients, this is written to the elect lady and her children is how John addresses it. We'll cover that a little more when we get into verse 1. And although this seems to be a personal letter, uh, addressed to a particular individual. Its content is pertinent to all believers for its instruction and warning against false teachers. That's in the second half of the letter. Historic background. There were many itinerant teachers going from church to church at that time. An itinerant uh, preacher or teacher is someone who has his home church. He just goes and shares with other people along the way. Unfortunately, some of those teachers were false teachers giving out false doctrine. The purpose of this epistle is to address these false teachers and false doctrines. Specifically, those teachings and doctrines of Gnosticism, which is derived from ancient pagan mystic beliefs and which, to put it simply, denies the deity of Christ and places knowledge above faith and importance. That's a real simplistic definition of it, but it's, it's good enough to do for our purposes tonight. 
In this epistle, John will deal with this situation in a very clear and strong manner, one that we're to take note of and still follow as well today. Again, the theme is truth and love. To emphasize the pathway to following Christ, and that pathway is love and truth. As followers of Christ, we must be committed to both of these things. Part one, and this is John going to tell us about love as it relates to the truth. Verses one through three are his greeting and blessing. He starts out and he says, The elder to the elect lady and their children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but all those who have known the truth. Because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and in love. He starts it out by addressing himself as the elder. In the Greek word, this is, uh, this is presbyteros. And this word we get Presbyterian from. And it means elder of age as well as term of rank or office. John was probably around 90 at this time when he wrote this epistle. And he had been an apostle uh, of Christ from the very beginning. So he had earned that title both ways, both through age and through rank. He says to the elect lady and her children. The phrasing here gives rise to the question as to who is this elect lady that he's addressing here. Some commentators, uh, some commentators believe it may be an individual believer. Some believe it may be a unique way to address a particular church or a group of churches. But all admit in the end they really don't know. One commentator had this thought as to possibly why John did not identify himself or the lady or her children. He said John possibly did not blame, uh, name himself the elect lady or her children by name because this was written during the time of persecution. Perhaps John didn't want to implicate anyone by name in a written letter. If the letter was intercepted and the authorities knew who it was written to by name, it might mean imprisonment or even death for them. Again, remember, this was at the time of Domitian's persecution of the church. I believe that John was writing to a specific and prominent woman that he knew quite well. And I think he was addressing a situation that she may have requested counsel on. But whatever the answer really doesn't have anything to do with the epistle. doesn't add or subtract to it. He continues, he says, the elect, to the, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. Whoever this person that John is addressing is, she's much beloved by him and by the church. Verse 2, he continues. He says, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Truth is mentioned five times in the first four verses. J. Vernon McGee, and I like J. Vernon McGee. He's a good commentator. He states this in his commentary on this verse. He says, love, agape, can only be expressed in the bounds and context of truth. We can't generate this form of love on our own. It comes only from the truth of God's word, truth and love, love and truth. They are inseparable. He says, because of the truth which abides in us, abides or dwells. How does this truth abide in us? invites in us to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. John 16:13 tells us this. He says, when he, 
the spirit of truth has come. He will guide you into all truth. So, which abides in us and will be with us forever. The truth of God will be with us forever. The truth of God is eternal. And as believers, we are bound together by those truths. Those truths will never change nor pass away. Peter told us in 1 Peter 20, uh, verse, uh, 1 Peter 1.25, he tells us that the word of God endures forever. And it does. And aren't we glad that it does? Verse 3 is John's blessing. He says, Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. He starts out by saying grace, mercy, and peace. The standard greeting in most of the New Testament, as we know, is grace and peace. Or in the Greek, it's uh, charis and uh, arena. And it's used throughout the New Testament. Here John uses an expanded version of that greeting. He says grace, mercy, in the Greek, elios. Grace, mercy, and peace. Most likely adding the word mercy as an encouragement to them due to the persecution that they were going through at that time. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father. God's grace and mercy brings peace to the believer. The peace from God mentioned here is the same as the peace of God, as mentioned in Philippians 4, 7. It says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And in Colossians 3.15 that says, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. So grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father again, in truth and love. I believe that John is saying here that it to fully experience God's grace, mercy, and peace, we as believers must commit ourselves to his truth and then communicate his love to others. One last comment on verse 3. Note that John inserts the phrase, the Son of the Father. The apostle still keeps in view here the deity of Christ, a thing which the Gnostics absolutely denied but a doctrine which is at the foundation of our salvation. Verses 4 through 6. He says, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we received commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. Verse 4 tells us how to walk. It tells us the pathway of truth and love. He says, I rejoice greatly that I found some of your children walking in truth. That's how we walk, as we received commandment from the Father. He said, I rejoice greatly. This shows John's heart as a pastor. He was overjoyed. And what was he overjoyed at? He says that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we receive commandment from the Father. A pastor is like a father. He loves to see his spiritual children walking in truth in that way. 
That's the heart of our pastor here in this church, and we should be very thankful for that. We've seen Zeke's heart the last couple weeks in his teachings, and he really does have a heart for his people. It says walking in truth, and again, truth is mentioned again. Walking in the truth of the gospel, walking with the Lord and abiding in him. Walking in truth as we receive commandment from the Father, it continues. Commandment. What is the commandment that came from God the Father that John is referring to here? I believe we find that in in, uh, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 12, verse 49 and 50. There Jesus said this. He said, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Wow, isn't that wonderful? The command of the Father is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. The commandment from God the Father is everlasting life through Jesus Christ, his Son. And it's to any and all that ask. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And this takes us back once again to love. In verse 5, John's exhortation to believers everywhere, every time, love one another. He says, Now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. The Greek used here for plead is uh, eratato, and it means to literally get on your knees and beg. Here John is telling us all through this letter that love for one another is so important that if we must, we we should get on our knees and beg our brothers and sisters to love each other. Wouldn't that be terrible if we did have to do that? You don't have to do that in this church. In this church, love abounds. It just shows in the face of the people. He continues. He says, Not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we had from the beginning. Here John says that this commandment to love isn't new. It's been said before that we love one another. In John 13.34, the Lord himself said this. He said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. In John 15:12, again, the Lord, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Love isn't optional. It's a command. It's a command from the Lord. And it's a command given to us by no less than God himself. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, he said, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God love one another. God teaches us to love one another. What's the greatest expression of love that has ever been? That's an easy one to answer, isn't it? It's right there behind me. It's the cross. Cross of Christ. Just as Christ loved us enough to go to the cross for us, we need to love each other. And then we need to show that love to the world so that the world will know that we are Christ's. The showing of love for each other is essential in our witness to the world. 
John 13:35. The Lord, again, the Lord. He said, "By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another." Again, it's a command, guys. It's not optional. First, we need to love one another, and then we need to take that love to the world to show God's love to them. And the way we show God's love to the world is by taking the gospel to them. That's the greatest love we can show to the world. That's the greatest love you can show to an unbeliever. It's showing them the way to Christ. The Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. The Lord said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Mark 16:15 And he said to them go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And of course Acts 1:8 But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and Phelan and Wrightwood and Hesperia and Apple Valley and Atlanta and to the end of the earth. Now I admit, sometimes living here we think we are at the end of the earth, but you know, we're really not. The Great Commission, or for all you Trekkies out there, and I know there's some of you, this is the prime directive. Does this mean that we all go to the mission field? Do we all become evangelists and teachers? Do we all need to become Bible scholars? No, that's not what it means. It's good for each of us to have a little of that in us. And while most of us are not specifically called for those offices, all of us are called to be part of this great commission. Like any other great endeavor, the great commission needs support workers. Those who will pray, those who will pay, those who will exhort and encourage those who will do the grunt work, the behind-the-scenes the behind the stuff that nobody ever sees. All are necessary things in order to accomplish that which we are called to do, to take the gospel to a lost and dying world. That is the responsibility of all believers. And if we partake in even a small way in the work, we will all partake in the blessings. And this is a biblical principle. 1 Samuel chapter 30 tells us how that David was away to fight the Philistines. While he was away fighting the Philistines, his camp was raided by the Amalekites. And all their possessions, including their wives and children, were taken captive. David and most of his men pursued the Amalekites, defeated them, and got everything back intact. And right there, that was a great miracle back in the Old Testament. But at the time that the pursuit started, some 200 of his fighters were too exhausted from chasing the Philistines um, to join the pursuit. Upon David's victorious return, the 200 that were too faint to accompany them came out to meet him. A dispute arose regarding the booty that had been taken, the booty, the treasure that had been taken from the Amalekites. Those that accompanied, accompanied David did not want to share any with the 200 who stayed behind. In verse 24 of that chapter, though, David states a very important principle that I believe applies to all of us. And it comes directly from God. He said, this is David speaking, he said, who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies 
is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. Don't ever think you are left out of the blessings because you aren't at the forefront of the battle. And it is a battle. It's a spiritual battle. Every one of us is involved in this great commission in one way or another, even if it's only through prayer. And God will honor that. He will bless you for that. Verse 6 is showing our love for God. John says, this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the great commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. This is love. What is love? John says, this is love, to obey, to be obedient to God. Obedience is how we show our love for the Lord. John 14:15, the Lord again said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Love is not what we feel at any given moment. It is what we do. It is our actions. It is what we commit ourselves to. Those who love God, obey God. Seems like a pretty clear principle to me. This is the commandment, he continues. This is the commandment that, as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. Again, the commandment that was from the beginning. This is the commandment of Christ, love one another. It always comes down to love, guys. Love is always the foundation upon which everything else is built. Now that John has finished covering love, he goes on to uh, further address truth, but this, this time in a different way. Verses 7 through 11. In these next few verses, John addresses the subject that most likely prompted this letter. False teachers and antichrists. Verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we have worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Going back to verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess, who do not confess Jesus uh, Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. That's an important statement. This isn't a new topic for John. John's been fighting the Gnostics for a while. But it was obviously one that was foremost in his thoughts as evidenced in his first epistle. This is what he had to say in, his, say in 1 John. This is 1 John 4, 1 through 3. Again, talking about the same people. He said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Do we have the spirit of Antichrist today? Yeah, we sure do. Again, we should keep in mind that John was countering the false teachings of the Gnostics that were getting a foothold in the church at this time. 
a teaching that denied the deity of Christ. And the deity of Christ, guys, man, that is so key. That is so key. Now, in the Greek, there's a little difference between what John says here in 2 John compared to what he said in 1 John. And it has to do with the tense he was speaking it in. In 1 John, he spoke in the past tense that Jesus had already come in the flesh. In 2 John, he speaks as in the future tense that Jesus will come in the flesh. This is a significant difference. Why? Well, because just like they had their Gnostics back there, we have Gnostics here today too. They appear at your door every now and then and knock on it. What does John say of them who hold that false doctrine, who do not confess that Jesus is coming in the flesh? He says, this is a deceiver and an antichrist. So here John gives us insight as how do we attest a teacher in his teaching. Does he teach that Jesus as God in human form came in the flesh and that he will come back in the flesh? If not, he's an antichrist, a false teacher. Again, that's pretty clear. And again, it's, it really comes to two things. The second coming of Christ and the deity of Christ. Those two things are key. Paul was very severe in his teaching on this subject as well. In Galatians 1.9, Paul said this, he says, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, he said, let him be accursed. That word accursed there in the Greek is the word anathema, which literally, literally means doomed to destruction. Paul says, if anybody brings you another gospel but that of Christ, let them be doomed to destruction. It's pretty strong language. <clears throat> we now come to verse 8. And this is an interesting verse to stick in here. John says, Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. What is John trying to stress here? Is he saying that if we get deceived and follow false doctrine that we can lose our salvation? I don't believe so. I believe that scripture assures us that we can never lose our salvation. Once we are justified unto eternal life, we're justified forever. <clears throat> Excuse me. But I do believe that John is telling us here that it is possible for believers to lose rewards. In the book of Hebrews, the author, who I think was Paul, but that's a different, that's a different study. The book of Hebrews tells us that uh, without faith it is impossible to please him, speaking of God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I believe that verse 8 is telling us that every believer has both the potential to receive a full reward or to receive a complete loss of rewards as well. In 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15, you can turn there if you want, but I'll read it. This, is, and this again is Paul speaking, and he's speaking about rewards. He says, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, 
he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. In other words, if you lose your reward, you're still going to heaven, but you're going there with nothing but the smell of smoke on you. Paul tells us that you can be saved while at the same time losing your rewards. John is encouraging us not to lose any rewards. Most believers will probably end up somewhere in the middle. We won't have our full rewards, but we'll have some. We won't lose them all. With rewards, but not with all that we could have received. The determining factor seems to be our faithfulness to Christ and our walk with him. Again, these rewards have nothing to do with justification, with eternal life. That's a settled issue for every believer. So John is telling us, don't lose any of those rewards that you have already gained. Be faithful to finish the works that God has given us to do. Those good works, as Ephesians 2.10 tells us about. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship. That word their workmanship in the Greek is poema. He says, we are his poem, we are his work of art, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. John's saying, don't lose those good works. Another point here, everything that we do as believers should testify to the gospel of the grace of God. We are Christ's ambassadors, and we must make sure that we are representing him correctly to the world. And, of course, our desire should always be to end well. Paul certainly did. Second Timothy 4.7. This is Paul's last letter before, before being martyred for the gospel. You can almost look at this as being his dying declaration. Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Let's pray that we can all say that when we get to the end. And through the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, we all will. Verse 9 continues. He says, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ is both the Father and the Son. He says, whoever transgresses. The Greek word here is uh, parabino. And what it really means is to overstep. In other words, to go beyond. So John says, whoever goes beyond and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ. That's what the Gnostics were doing. Taking the gospel beyond the gospel of Christ. They were adding to it. In other words, going beyond Christ's doctrine, just like some are doing today. He says, he who does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. They've left God. They are no longer abiding in truth. Those who distort the gospel of Christ no longer have Christ, and it is most likely they never did. In 1 John 2.19, and I'm going to speak out of the NIV translation, and this is speaking of these false teachers that left the church. He said, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. These false teachers who claimed to be Christians never truly were. If they had, they would have still been abiding. But on the other hand, John continues, he says, He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. 
those who abide in the truth, those who stay within the bound of the truth of the gospel. They continue to have fellowship with both the Father and the Son, and they are true believers. Verses 10 and 11. He says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, again he's speaking of the gospel of Christ, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. What John is saying here is that if anyone comes to you bringing anything other than the gospel of Christ, even if they come knocking on your door, do not receive or even greet or acknowledge them. Do not let them under your roof. Furthermore, don't even <coughs> excuse me, don't even converse with them. Do not give aid to their cause in any fashion, he says. Do not even say, God bless you or God speed. Why? Verse eleven. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. This is a very strong warning uh, in very strong language. The word shares here in the Greek is the word koinio. And we know that we get our word communion from that. It means to uh, have fellowship with, to become a sharer, to be made a partner. Join oneself to an associate. John is telling us here that we give these people encouragement of any kind. We share in their evil deeds, their deception, their lies. That we are sharing in the spreading of their false doctrine. So, of course, the the question that rises is this. What about the Mormons? What about the Jehovah's Witnesses that come to our doors? Aren't we supposed to try to witness to them? Well, you heard what John said as well as I did. What do you think? I think based on what John said here is that we are not to even converse with these people. What are these cults trying to accomplish anyway? They don't push their lies to the unbelievers. They try to undermine believers. To steal souls away from the kingdom of God. To find people they can uh, be enticed away from the truth. Usually young Christians who are not fully grounded in the word of God yet. In 1 John 4.1, John said this. He said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. In the 10th chapter of uh, the Gospel of John, you can turn it if you want to follow along. John 10.1, Jesus himself says this. He says, Most assuredly I say to you, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. And who's that door he's talking about? John chapter 10, verse 7. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Anyone who comes to you with any gospel apart from Christ is a thief and a robber with only one purpose. And what is that one purpose? John 10.10 says the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. When those people knock on your door, that's exactly what they're looking for. Don't you think that attempting to steal souls from God in, in, in order to destroy them is a serious subject? Don't you think that God takes that pretty seriously? These verses in the Gospel of John clearly says that he does. And this isn't the only place that we're told not to associate with certain kinds of people. Let's read what Paul had to say in 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13. 
<clears throat> I'm going to read this from the New Living uh, Translation for clarity, because in the uh, in the um, King James it's it's a little bit muddled. <clears throat> Paul says, "When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin, but I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin, or are greedy, or cheat people, or worship idols." discovers any type of idolatry. You would have to leave the world in order to avoid people like that. So what he's saying there is we are definitely to witness to the world, to unbelievers. He goes on, though. He says, I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother, who claims to be a believer, yet indulges in sexual sin, or is greedy, or who worship idols, who denies the true God or is abusive, or a drunkard, or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. <clears throat> he goes on, he says, It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, but as the scripture says, you must remove the evil person from among you. In other words, stay away from them. The evil person here he's talking about is are not unbelievers. It says with anyone named a brother, both Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses claim to be Christians. Let's make this very, very clear. They are not Christians. Not in any way, shape, or form, no matter what they claim. You might say, oh, but they're such good people. Their motives seem so pure. They seem to really love God. And well, they're just such good people. Remember this. God did not come to earth to make good, bad people good. God, uh, Christ came to make dead people live. Ephesians 2.1 tells us, And you he made alive who are dead in trespasses and sin. Good people are not necessarily righteous people. What is the definition of righteous? Observing divine laws and keeping the commandments of God. A person can be very good, but at the same time not be righteous. God takes a firm stand against any kind of false doctrine, and so must we. False doctrines come right from the pit of hell. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. They walk among us. This is spiritual warfare of the highest order. I want you to do something. The next time one of those people comes knocking on your door and you open it up and they're sitting there with that smile on their face, they look so pure and clean and wholesome. I want you to do this. I want you to imagine a demon of hell sitting on their shoulder because I guarantee you there's at least one sitting there, if not many more. Are the people that God has called to minister to these people, to these cults? Yes. There are many ministries devoted to witnessing to and retrieving people out of them. I'm not saying that those people are not doing God's will. I believe they are. But I also believe that when you go up against these cults, these false teachers, this spiritual darkness... You'd better be called by God to do that, and you'd better be very well equipped by God to deal with them. If you truly believe that God has called you to that ministry, great. Just make very sure that he did. Otherwise, you could be in danger.
And I don't believe this applies only when dealing with the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses. We need to be very careful whenever we support anything. Ministries, Christian charities, whatever. Anything that we're not familiar with, check them out first. All of them should have a mission statement posted somewhere. A faith statement of what they believe in. If what they believe in is what you believe in, fine, support them. If they don't or they don't even have a faith statement at all, then save your money. It's better to be safe than sorry. One more point here. Only a born-again worshiper of Jesus Christ has the right to call themselves Christian. Maybe it's time that those of us who carry that family name become more jealous and more protective of it. Personally, I'm getting a little tired of being lumped together with all of these counterfeit Christians, all pretending to be something that they're not. I only want to be identified with the real thing. How about you? Amen. Let's take a stand, huh? Let's, let's take a stand. Let's, let's protect our, our family name, the family name of Christ. Verses 12 and 13, John concludes with some personal words. Verse 12, having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink. But I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Here John speaks of his hopes for a future visit to this person. I begin, again, I believe that the wording implies it's writing to a close personal friend. He ends it with a simple greeting from the children of this person's sister. So what do we take away from this epistle? Two things, I think. First, love one another. Just as Christ loves us, and then take that love to the world. And the way we take it to the world is by sharing the gospel with the world. Second, tolerate no other gospel than the gospel of Christ. All others lead only to loss and destruction. In Revelation chapter 2, the Lord writes a letter to the church of Thyatira. In that letter, he is uh, a condemnation of them. He says, you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants. Note that Jezebel calls herself a prophetess. God didn't appoint her a prophetess. She appointed herself a prophetess. So do all these fake, uh, these false teachers appoint themselves teachers. Also, he said, you allow that woman Jezebel. You allow that woman Jezebel. He didn't say they agreed with her doctrines or followed her doctrines or taught her doctrines. He said that they had merely allowed or tolerated her and her doctrines. What I'm going to say next would be very distasteful in many Christian circles today. We serve an intolerant God. He said, you shall have no other gods before me. Period. End of discussion. There's no gray area there. There's no room for misinterpretation. There's no room for debate. And there certainly is no room for tolerance. If we tolerate anything in our lives that is not of God, it leads only to loss and destruction. Let's make sure that we only fill our lives with those things that are of God. Amen? Amen. All right. Would you stand with me as we pray?
Thank you, Lord, for this time in your word. Let each one of us take to heart the message of this epistle. We pray that according to your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit that dwells within us, you will enable us to love as you have loved. Enable us to make you the invisible God, visible to a lost and dying world. And then we pray that also that you would give us the wisdom and discernment to fully test any and all things that come into our lives and to discard anything and all things that are not of you. Lord, let your blessings fall upon each one of us here now. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.